In uh, Max Lucado's book, In the Grip of Grace, he relates an experience he had while traveling on an airplane. And it's an account, hopefully, to which most of us can relate, even though many of us have never flown. Many of you probably are afraid to fly. Uh, but the encounter, really, that I'm about to describe to you is not really about a childish passenger on a physical trip, but rather it's a poignant illustration of a childlike pilgrim on a spiritual journey. So I'm just going to ask you to please allow the pen of the author to sketch this picture for you. Good. I'm glad you're sitting by me because sometimes I throw up. Not exactly what you like to hear from the airline passenger in the next seat. Before I had time to store my bag in the overhead compartment, I knew his name, his age, and his itinerary. I'm Billy Jack. I'm 14, and I'm going home to see my daddy. And I started to tell him my name, but he spoke first. I need someone to look after me. I get confused a lot. And he told me about the special school that he attended and the medication that he took. Can you remind me to take my pill in a few minutes? And before we buckled up, he stopped the airline attendant. Don't forget about me, he told her. I get awfully confused. And once we were airborne, Billy Jack ordered a soft drink and dipped his pretzels in it. And he kept glancing at me as I drank and asked if he could drink what I didn't. And he spilled some of his soda and apologized. No problem, I said, wiping it up. And Billy Jack showed me his cassette player and asked if I'd like to listen to one of his tapes. I brought my favorites, he smiled, handing me the soundtracks from The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, and The Lion King. When he started playing with his Nintendo Game Boy, I tried to doze off. That's when he started making noises with his mouth, imitating a trumpet. I can sound like the ocean, too, he said and he started swishing spit back and forth in his cheeks. <laughs> didn't sound like the ocean to me, but I didn't tell him. <laughs> Billy Jack was a little boy in a big body. Can clouds hit the ground, he asked me. I started to answer, but he looked back out the window like he'd never asked. Unashamed of his needs, he didn't let a flight attendant pass without a reminder. Hey, don't forget to look after me. And when they brought the food, don't forget to look after me. And when they brought more drinks, don't forget to look after me. When any attendant would pass, Billy Jack would urge, don't forget to look after me. I honestly can't think of one time, the author says, that Billy Jack didn't remind the crew that he needed attention. The rest of us didn't. We never asked for help. We were grown-ups, sophisticated, self-reliant, seasoned travelers. Most of us didn't even listen to the emergency landing instructions. Billy Jack asked me to explain every single one of them to him. Midway through the writing of this book, the author says, I remembered Billy Jack. He would have understood this idea of grace. He knew what it was like to place himself totally in the care of someone else. Do you? Have you?
placed your life in the care of someone else. Many in this room still resist. And there are some today before this service is through who will have yet one more chance to do what God has been reaching out and begging you to do for weeks, possibly months, maybe even years. To cross that line of trust and believe that the outcome of your lives can be left with someone who is able to bring us safely through to our destination. Why not place your hands in the care of someone stronger than you? In the face of our intellectual sophistication and maturity, we need a message like the one that Malachi gave to the people of his day. Paul gave to those in his day, and the Spirit of God gives to us right now in our day. The words were written for people like us because confession of need is tantamount to admission of weakness, and it's something that we are not prone to do. That's why I think the author feels that Billy Jack would have understood grace so well. Has it occurred to you, as it did Max Lucado when he wrote that book, that Billy Jack was the safest person on that flight? Had that plane encountered any trouble whatsoever, he would have received primary assistance. That the flight attendants would have bypassed Max and gone directly to Billy Jack. You think that that would have happened? Why? Simply because, in the words of the author, he had placed himself in the care of someone stronger. And again, I ask you, have you? You know, there are really only two categories of people in this world. Those who have placed themselves and their eternal destination in the care of God. And those who haven't and are trying to get there on their own. That's it. And the line of demarcation is not always clearly drawn to us, is it? But one day it will be. One day the sides will be tallied and the distinction will be made. On one side will be those who will spend eternity in relationship to Jesus Christ and on the other, those who will not. And though it is not something most people want to even hear preached today, much less even talk about, there will be no in-between. It's heaven or hell. Eternal paradise, perpetual pain. Jesus spoke clearly of that decision that will be made. Look in your Bibles at Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes, he said, in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Skip down to verse 41. 
Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and the books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it and the death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now the Bible speaks of various judgments that will take place in the end of time. But most, the most significant thing about all of them is this fact. We are the ones who choose the outcome. People choose the outcome. And we make the choice here and now. Not later. Not after we die. Now. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28 says this, and it, inasmuch as it has been appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. In John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus said these words, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. The lines will be drawn and the choice you make today will have an immediate effect upon which side of the line you will ultimately end up on. That was the message of Malachi in chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. I'd like you to turn there. We're winding up this book. One more message after today, and we'll have gone through the whole book. Yay. <laughs> Unless Christ comes back. And you'll have to spend eternity listening to the rest of the teaching of this book from him. Yay. <laughs> Malachi 3, verses 16 to 18. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord gave attention and heard it. That's enough right there to preach on. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I prepare my own possession and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. As the prophet concludes his message here and begins to conclude it, 
to an entire nation who had arrogantly turned from the humble pursuit of an intimate relationship with God and opted instead for the hypocritical routine of religious ritual, he draws a line in the sand and he says, look, God is not looking for self-made religion. He's offering you a relationship. Getting right with God is not about doing it on your own. Because you can't. I can't. It's about placing yourself in the care of someone stronger than you. Someone who can do it. It's about trust. And that, by the way, is the distinct difference between a man-made religious system and true Christianity. A right relationship with God, as you've heard it so many times said before, depends not upon what we do for him, but what's already been done by him for us. Even in Malachi's day, that was the case. Being God, right with God, is determined by relationship, not by rituals. And there's some eternal truths in this text that we can bring home concerning a right relationship with God. There are statements which will, will withstand the test of time. They will never wear out, never fail, never pass away. And that sounds like a pretty bold statement, doesn't it? But God's word makes bold distinctions and we can count on them to endure God's words. And the first thing we find here in this text is that we can count on God's remembrance. Verse 16. Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord gave attention and heard it. So stop there for a minute. God remembers his own people. His attention is focused on them. There is not one child of God on the face of this earth, nor has there ever been, that he has forgotten. Not one. In the midst of a society who had forgotten God, Malachi draws our attention to a group which was not forgotten by God. His remnant those who still, according to this text, feared the Lord. In reading this book, you may get the idea that there wasn't a single person in the entire nation of Israel that had a right relationship with God. Yet time after time, the Bible testifies to the fact that there's always a group of people, however few, who revere him and continue to remain faithful to him. There's always a small group. And the same is true in our world today. And the big question of the day is, are you one of them? Do you fear God? Are you one of those people that Malachi talks about, who holds him in awe and worships him as almighty God, your eternal father, and one who holds your life and mine in the balance? Is that how you see him? Malachi said that those who feared the Lord spoke to each other. And I believe they, in the midst of their godless surroundings here in this time, Malachi's time, continually encouraged one another to a renewed faith and a rekindled reverence 
for God. And that's what we're charged to do in the New Testament as well. In Hebrews chapter 3, in verse 13, the writer says this, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How do we encourage each other today? How do we do it? By seeking and celebrating the truth. Those who fear the Lord rehearse the truth. What is the fear of the Lord anyway? What is it? Let me give you just a whole bunch of things that the Bible says the fear of the Lord is. Number one, it's the basis for wisdom. Job 28, 28 says, And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil, that's understanding. Proverbs 1, 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9, 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 15.33 says that the fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. Clearly, the fear of the Lord sets the tone for the entire book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is also a fountain of life, Proverbs says, that one may avoid the snares of death. Also says that the fear of the Lord prolongs life, that the fear of the Lord is life. It leads to life. It's a fountain of life. It's also the foundation for justice. I won't read it, but if you go to 2 Samuel chapter 23, from verse 3 on, you can read about that. It's the fuel for faithfulness. Proverbs 16, 6 says this, And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. Have a hard time keeping away from evil? How's your fear of the Lord factor? It's the forerunner of forgiveness and the repository of mercy. Luke chapter 1 and verse 50 says this, And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. And it's the epitome of personal fulfillment. Psalm 145 verse 19 says, He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. Those who fear the Lord rehearse these kinds of truths, but as a direct result, Malachi points out that those who fear the Lord receive his attention. Look at that. It says, they, those who fear the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. Psalm 10, verses 17 and 18 says this, You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. God pays attention to those who fear him. He hears the cry of the humble, the poor, the destitute, the orphan and the broken and the seeker of truth. I love this verse in Psalm 56, 8. In the New Living Translation, it says, You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Does that give you any encouragement at all? For some people, that bottle's pretty full that the Lord has, huh? 
The message puts it this way. You've kept track of my every toss and turn through the sleepless nights. Each tear entered in your ledger. Each ache written in your book. He knows it. He knows every one of them. And we can count on him to remember. Because he distinctively recognizes the voice of his people who are groping after faith in a world which is cynical and antagonistic toward spiritual truth. Notice the double emphasis here in Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. It says that he gave attention and he heard. The first word in Hebrew, kashab, means to prick up the ears. It means he pays attention. Bing, he hears it. The second word is the word shema. It means hear. The act of hearing intelligently, attentively, and carefully. Even when the sound of our voices upsets everyone else in the world around us, what it does is it pricks up our father's ears and catches his attention if we are his children. During a church service, Tim Elmore writes in the book Soul Provider, I saw a father carry his 11-year-old son out of the auditorium. His son had been making disturbing noises. Must have been a pretty good-sized kid for 11 years old, and his father's carrying him. And all these noises were distracting the people near him by his fidgeting and squirming. And the author says, I was moved emotionally when I saw him later in the foyer of the church holding his 11-year-old son in his arms, stroking his hair. And what the problem was, was the boy had epilepsy. But the father showed no signs of embarrassment or humiliation by it all. He just kept whispering in the boy's ear as he held him and stroked his hair, I love you. I love you. See, those who fear the Lord rehearse his truth and receive the father's focused attention, it says here. The Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. Malachi says those who fear the Lord are recorded in eternity. This is the only place in your Bible, by the way, in which you will find the expression book of remembrance. The only place. Yet throughout the Bible, the idea of God recording in eternity the names and activities of those who are his is undeniable. And my question again is, is your name written there? Is it written there? In the ancient Near East, it was the custom of kings to have a written record of the most prominent events and significant deeds done in their kingdom, as well as the people's names who were associated with those events. As a matter of fact, if you look at Esther chapter 6 and the first three verses, if you read that, that is a primary example of such a practice. You'll see the king reading about Mordecai and asking about what was done for this man who saved the king's life. It's a record of these significant events. In the Bible, it is clearly stated that God keeps a record of remembrance of his people and their deeds as well. The true believers in the Old Testament, those who genuinely feared the Lord, were said to be written into God's book, their names recorded in eternity. 
Now, the line between God's people and those who do not have a relationship with him has always been drawn in the scripture, and it is most clearly portrayed in the description of names that are written down into a book of life, which will be opened and scrutinized at the end of time, at the judgment seat of God. Hold your finger in Malachi for a moment and look at Daniel, just back a few books. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 10. And then we're going to go to Daniel 12, verse 1. Daniel 7, verse 10. Daniel writes, A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. And the court sat and the books were opened. Skip over to Daniel chapter 12 for a moment. Verse 1. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. It's a great verse. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The New Testament is equally vocal concerning this undeniable re reality. If you look in your Bibles at Revelation chapter 20, in verses 11 through 15, which we already read, you'll see that again. But when a person comes to faith in Christ, their names are enrolled into eternity and will not be erased. This book of remembrance that Malachi is talking about written before the Lord, is not to remind him as though he would forget your name. That's theologically impossible. But as a concrete record that in eternity, it is only those who have been written into God's family through a relationship of genuine faith to Christ who will gain entrance into paradise. And Malachi's thought is simply this. No one believer, not one single believer, will be forgotten by God. Not any, not a single believer. No one will be left out. Their names are carved into the hands of Jesus who gave himself for them. One of the most beautiful statements of the precious remembrance of God toward his people came through the pen of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 49, verses 14 to 16, we read these words. But Zion said this, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. And then God says, can a woman forget her nursing child? And have no compassion on the son of her womb? God says, even these may forget, but I will not forget you. I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. And that word inscribed 
It is a strong word in the Hebrew, and it means to cut into. To cut into. And some people know that pain. That pain of being forgotten and lonely and empty. And they carve things into their own flesh. But I want you to think about this verse if that's you. Think about this verse in Isaiah who says that if you are in Christ, God has carved you into the flesh of his hands in Jesus Christ. The names are there. The scars are there for all eternity. And I ask you again, is your name there? Are you one of those who are characterized by the fear of the Lord? People who fear him rehearse his truth. They receive his attention. They're recorded in eternity. And according to Malachi, one more thing. Those who fear the Lord revere his name. It says, esteem his name. And what does that word esteem mean? Well, in the Hebrew, it means to weave or to fabricate together from mental effort. In other words, the basic idea is that you're running thoughts through the mind and mentally computing things. Literally, it means meditation. I love the way the Living Bible renders this verse. It renders it like this. It says, and he had a book of remembrance drawn up in which he recorded the names of those who feared him and loved to think about him. It's a great phrase. And it really sets the meaning. Does it describe you? How much of the day do you actually do with God? How, think about your day. How much of the day do you actually do with God? Where he is on your mind. Somewhere on your mind. Whether in the back or in the front. How much is he on your mind? Do you, as the Living Bible puts it, love to think about him? To contemplate his character, his goodness, his grace, his patience? Do you spend any time at all meditating on the incredible measure of his love for you and what it cost him? I'll tell you when you think about him, you think about him when the doctor calls and says, you might have cancer. How many of you think about him when you're on the golf course? Unless you're praying for a hole in one. <laughs> what does it mean to spend the day occupied with God? Let me give you one thing to ponder at the outset. John Ortberg writes this. He says, spending the day with God does not usually involve doing different things from what we already do. Mostly, it involves learning to do what we already do in a new way. With God. That's what it means to esteem his name. And those people who do that can count on his remembrance, Malachi says. The reason is because of the second thing Malachi reveals here in, this, in the next verse. He's committed to the relationship. Look at verse 17. They, these are some of the most personal and comforting words you'll read in the scripture. They will be mine. 
says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I prepare my own possession and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. The King James Version says it like this, and they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my jewels. He calls his people his jewels. Incredible. It's a very, very rare word in Hebrew. It's only used eight times in the entire Old Testament, but its significance doesn't need much, much explanation. I can give it to you in a picture. God is saying here about you is what Gollum said about the ring. My precious. You're my precious. You and I are among his most precious possessions. He would do just about anything for you. Scripture says. He wouldn't kill for you, but he would certainly die for you. How do you relate to your most prized possession? Think about that for a minute. What is your most prized and precious possession? Let me ask you a serious question. What is the one thing in your life today? What's the one thing in your life that you would run back into a burning house to retrieve? What is it? What is your precious? What is the thing that you would run through waist-deep acid to rescue? That is exactly what you are to God. That's exactly what you are to God. He's committed to the relationship. You know how I know? Because there is personal identification in this verse. Look at it. They will be mine, God says. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. Did you hear that? Mine. Jesus said that in the New Testament. He said some very, very encouraging words. Some people take issue with them. I don't happen to take issue with them. I think they're very clear and very plain. In John chapter 10, verses 27 and 29, and 29, says this very clearly. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So far, so good. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish even better. And then he says this, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's precious. That's a precious possession. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able. Mark the word able. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Nothing is more precious to God than his children. In the day of judgment, when it all comes down to the wire, those who belong to him will be spared, it says here by the Lord. 
True believers, followers of Christ, are described as God's personal and precious possessions, and he will protect them. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 16 says this, When that day arrives, the Lord their God will rescue his people just as a shepherd rescues his sheep, and they will sparkle in his hand like jewels in a crown. He would go through a living hell to protect his own. In fact, he did. The cross was the apex of God's personal identification with mankind. He is committed to the relationship and we're his. There's personal identification here. I am his. There's also faithful compassion listed here in this verse, which says, I am loved. Look at that, verse 17 again. I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Great passage of scripture in the Psalms. 103, Psalm 103. Listen to these words. You don't have to turn there. Just mark the reference because you're going to want to go back to this and think about it and pray through it and repeat it and memorize it. He has not dealt with us according to our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Isn't that great? Just as the father has compassion on his son or on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame that we are but dust. It's a good thing, the psalmist says, that the relationship doesn't depend upon us because we're just dust but it depends upon the Father who has not dealt with us according to our sins. You and I intensely matter to God. And it does not matter if you are perfect. In fact, you can't be short of Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's a matter of personally receiving God's covenant love. And as I said before, it's a matter of realizing that we can't do anything to save ourselves. It's a matter of accepting what he's done. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7 says, But then God our Savior showed us his kindness and love. He saved us not because of the good things we did, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins and gave us a new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us because of what Jesus Christ, our Savior, did. He declared us not guilty. Not guilty. Because of his great kindness. And now we know that we will inherit eternal life. Folks, our weakness cannot be dismissed. It must be confessed. We must place ourselves into the care of someone stronger, just like Billy Jack did. Because what we really are without Christ is not a pretty picture. Unable to help ourselves, sinners, helpless, hopeless, enemies of God, the Bible says, but that's precisely who he died for. For he didn't die for us while we were perfect but yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 
Family therapist Paul Faulkner tells of a man who set out to adopt a troubled teenage girl. And one would question the father's logic about this. The girl was pretty destructive, disobedient, and dishonest. And one day she came home from school and ransacked the house looking for money. And upon hearing about, of her actions, friends came around this man and urged him not to finalize the adoption. Let her go, they said. After all, she's not really your daughter. You know what the guy's response was? Yeah, I know she's not my daughter. But I told her she was. I told her she was. God has always reached out to spare his people through faithful compassion. He spared Moses in Exodus chapter 2. He spared Lot in Genesis chapter 18 and 19. He spared Israel so many times, you can't even list the verses. And he spared us. Not because they or we were strong in and of ourselves or obedient or willing to follow, but when we were digging in our heels and flat out resisting him after we ransacked his house and rebelled. That's when he saved us. According to Romans chapter 5, verse 6. He didn't say, okay, when you get it right, you can come back. He didn't look at our shriveled up lives and say, I'll die for you when you deserve it or I'll rescue you when you learn how to walk the right way. He didn't say that. No, he provided salvation when we least deserved it and least expected it. In fact, we weren't even looking for it for most of us. I wasn't. He was looking for me though. And he's looking for you. He's looking for you. See, we got a big problem on our hands. Check this picture out. That's a big chasm, isn't it? You suppose that if you were on one side, you could jump to the other side? How'd you get across there? God has a purpose for your life, and it's to be on one side, the other side, the side where God is. But we got a problem. There's this huge gap. And we may be making up plans to try to get across it, but they're not working because we all fall short of that. Cut off from God. The soul withers and dies. And the consequences of sin, folks, is not a bad day, a bad mood, a bad dream. It's a dead soul. And now you know why people can be so hideous to each other. Because their souls are dead. That's why religion can sometimes be so oppressive. Because there's no life in man-made religion. That's why the murderer and the rapist and the adulterer and the liar can sleep at night and live with their consciences because they don't have one. They don't have life. They have a dead soul unless God comes into their life and provides the remedy, which was the cross. And you know that old bridge to life presentation if you've been in Christian circles very long. Just picture that cross spanning that gap right there. 
The only way that you can make it and get across is if somebody provides the bridge. And if you're one of those who fears him, as it says in Malachi, you can count on him remembering that he put the bridge there and he's committed to that relationship. That bridge is not going to fall. But in the end, the final line will be drawn and there will be an inevitable distinction between those who fear him and those who do not. And every one of you in this place today either are now or will be on one side of that chasm or the other. Which side will you be on? The God side or the without God side? Because in that day when we stand and face Jesus Christ, and it's coming sooner than you and I care to think, as we've seen in Malachi, he's going to confirm the reality. Verse 18. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. And the witness of biblical history, as well as the echoing messages of the prophets, testify that God has always made a distinction between those who are rightly related to him and those who are not. The flood, the exodus, the Babylonian, the Assyrian captivities, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, all the prophecies concerning the coming time of tribulation and the end of the world as we know it clearly testify to the fact that God's ultimate judgment on humankind turns on a man's or a woman's personal relationship to Jesus Christ. That relationship is determined by a response to God's offer and invitation to return to him and receive his salvation. Just back up to Malachi 3, verse 7. Halfway down the verse, God says, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Return to me. So what are you waiting for? The choice is yours. Here and now, today. Don't put it off till tomorrow, because I'll tell you what, tomorrow is probably the most dangerous word that you'll ever utter. I remember so clearly, so many occasions, sitting with people and talking to them, tears streaming down their face, asking them if they want to pray to receive Christ. And they say, no, I'm going to go home and think about it maybe tomorrow. And they never have done it since. Some people have, but a lot of them haven't. And they were ready right there and then but gave the devil the opportunity to steal that seed away. One thing is certain, you can't save yourself. The canyon is too wide. Think you can make that leap? The distance is too great. You need Jesus Christ to bridge the gap. And I'm going to ask you if you've made that journey over that great spiritual divide. I sincerely hope you have. I really do. If you have, I rejoice along with the angels in heaven because you know your final destination and who waits for you when you get there. But if you haven't trusted Christ, 
My heart literally aches for you because no one has to experience the alternative, which is a long journey down. Why would anyone want that alternative? Why would anyone want it? Would you bow your heads, please? Every one of us is on one side of that chasm or the other. And our Heavenly Father loved us so much that He did sacrifice His only Son. That we who believe in Him might have everlasting life and never perish and have a hope for the future. I ask you today to make that decision in your heart to either receive what Christ offers what the Father offers, what the Holy Spirit offers, so that you may be on the safe side of the bridge. It's just a matter of crying out in your heart to God, realizing your need, and understanding and accepting his offer to meet your need, your deepest need, no matter what it is. I'm going to pray right now, and I'm going to ask you that if you desire that gift, if you've never received it, that you would pray in your heart to receive that gift. And then uh, I'll be up front here, and Henry and Glenn will be up front after the last song. If you'd like some prayer, you'd like to pray with one of us, or Make that decision. As everyone else moves out at the close of the service, we're going to invite you to just stay and come and talk to us. Father in heaven, what an incredible gift you gave to us in your son, Jesus Christ. We don't often understand how it must have pained you in your heart to make such a sacrifice for those who really didn't pay much attention to you. And we try to explain it with human imagery and human terms. But the bottom line is, is no words can explain it, but our hearts can feel it. I pray, Father, that you would meet the needs of those that are here today that are crying out to you. And I know your word says, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whether it's our need for eternal life or our need for forgiveness or our need to come clean with some junk that's in our lives, I pray that we would leave it with you and take a walk across that bridge to life. For Jesus' sake, I pray. <laughs>